And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And if you have a story to tell us, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we've got a well of a tale to bring you right now. This story brings the elements of nature and explosives together in a way that only our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, can explain. This infamous tale of an exploding well just happened to occur in his home state of Oregon. Here's Jesse. On November 9th, 1970, a 45-foot-long, 8-ton sperm whale washed ashore on the central Oregon coast, just outside the town of Florence. After all these years, it's amazing that this thing has come back to life again. But every once in a while, it pops up. It's an aroma that still lingers. It was one of the worst smells I've ever encountered. Words cannot describe the smell. It was in my nostrils for a solid week. The whale carcass remained rotting on the beach for over a week, and nobody knew what to do about it. It was too big to bury, it stunk too much to cut into smaller pieces, and burning it was out of the question. At the time, Oregon beaches were under the jurisdiction of the state's highway division, which, after consulting with the United States Navy, decided to remove the whale using dynamite. George Thornton was the engineer in charge of the operation. Well, I'm confident that it'll work. The only thing is we're not sure just exactly how much uh, explosives it'll take to disintegrate this. Things so the scavengers, seagulls and crabs and whatnot can clean it up. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left, and uh, we may have to do some other cleanup, possibly set another charge. Thornton was chosen to remove the whale carcass because his supervisor had gone hunting that day. A charge of half a ton of dynamite was selected. As word spread across town, Crowds began to gather. I'm thinking we got big trouble here. 20 cases of dynamite. Walter Umenhofer, a military veteran with explosives training, happened to be in the crowd. He warned the crew that the 20 cases of dynamite was an overkill. 20 sticks would have sufficed. But his advice went unheated. This guy says, anyhow, he says, I'm going to have everybody up there on the top of those dunes far away. And I said, yeah, and I'm going to be the furthest SOB down that way. They made a big spectacle of, of, of waving their hats, their hard hats in the air. and went, clear everybody away and all this, all clear. The dynamite was buried under the whale on the leeward side so that most of the mammal would be blown towards the sea. The crowds of people that had come to see the whale be blown to bits were pushed back a quarter of a mile to safety. The dynamite was detonated at 3.45 p.m. What you're hearing 
are the chunks of rotten whale blubber raining down on the spectators. Walter Umenhofer saw it all happen. And they touched that sucker off, and let me tell you, that thing went up and it was the biggest mushroom cloud you ever seen, and it was red and white and black, and it was nothing but guts and blood and gunk. Carried by strong coastal winds, a cloud of putrid whale fluids moved inland. So everybody all of a sudden start realizing that, oh my God, here it comes in this mist. We were covered, we were permeated with redness and the smell. Those who witnessed the explosion agree that the next few moments seemed to last forever. It soon became apparent that what should have been little pieces of whale turned out to be big ones. And this stuff starts hitting the ground. Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden you realize, my God, I could be killed by whale blubber here. And I'm watching this one piece. There's a big piece up there. It's kind of flubbering and floating around. And we ran. We literally ran. And it just absolutely stopped. And it came flat down. And kapow. Right on top of Walter Amenhofer's 1969 Oldsmobile. It was a neat car. I just got it from Dunham's, and it was a Regency. And, and like I say, the funny thing about their 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 slogan is it was a whale of a deal. Well, I got a hell of a whale of a deal. <laughs> Within two days, the state of Oregon wrote Walter a check for the full retail value of his car. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds, yet only some of the whale was disintegrated. The majority of the whale carcass remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division to clean up. Due to damage that was caused to local property, whales that are found beached in Oregon are now buried where they're found. And you may be wondering what happened to the man who decided it was a good idea to use 1,000 pounds of dynamite to blow up the beached whale, George Thornton. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left. In his official report back in 1970, he declared the operation a success, which helps to explain what happened to his career just six months later. He got promoted. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, as always, to Jesse Edwards, who always manages to find these quirky and yet, ultimately, American stories. And I just loved hearing the voices and the sound effects. My goodness. I just keep thinking about the smell. And as always, you can send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. If you've heard of a quirky one like this, or you've just got a personal one that you'd love for us to tell, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. The Exploding Well of Florence, Oregon. That story here on Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, which is, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. On this day in history in 1961, President Dwight D. Eisenhower delivered his final public speech as the 34th President of the United States of America. You may remember this speech for Ike's warning about the growing military-industrial complex, but as you'll hear, there was much more to Ike's message than just that. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. Like every other citizen, I wish the new president and all who will labor with him Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. We now stand ten years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely, and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the stake. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. 
Balance between the private and the public economy. Balance between the cost and hoped for advantages. Balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance and progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these, I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. 
For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So in this, my last good night to you as your president, I thank you for the many opportunities you have given me for public service in war and in peace. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you, and good night. And my goodness, this may be as underrated a speech by a president as ever there was. And what he was warning about, about innovation and how government contracts can kill that innovation, that it gets killed by chasing the grant, not the idea, and also that a government contract can become a substitute for intellectual curiosity. And by the way, he was no enemy of the government. Remember, he served as the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Forces in Europe during World War II. And so he knows a little bit about what he speaks of. Statesmanship here, folks, you hear it everywhere in this speech. It's something we always long for in our leaders in Washington, D.C. Eisenhower's farewell address, this day in history, in 1961. This is Our American Stories. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. 
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And anytime we can play Alison Krauss in the right context, we do. No one does the American songbook better. Straight as an arrow. Let the song do the talking. And it's time for our regular final thought segment. This is when we hear final thoughts from people who are dying. And also final thoughts from folks about those who have passed. A eulogy, a written tribute, anything that stirs the soul. And we've taken a few from this particular gentleman who writes periodically for the Wall Street Journal because he's a doctor. And doctors know firsthand a lot about death. And this is a man who has not insulated himself from the emotional impact of patients that die. And that makes him remarkable. This week's final thoughts feature is a powerful one from Dr. E. Wesley Ely. And again, he's a professor of medicine and critical care at the Nashville VA Medical Center and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Ely recently told the story in the Wall Street Journal, and it was called A Swimming Pool in the ICU. He graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Swimming pool in the ICU? You must be you nuts. must be nuts. The nurse's voice was almost lost among the whooshing ventilator and infusion pumps. Five days earlier, we had admitted Benny, a Vietnam veteran, to the intensive care unit of our VA hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Frail and wrinkled, he had a look of utter confusion and a furrowed brow that would pluck the heartstrings of even the most calloused physician. Decades spent in southern tobacco fields left him looking old enough to remember Hoover's presidency. Double pneumonia and too much sedation made him delirious. As his attending physician, I was thankful for his family. His daughter and son, Laura and Lynn, implored, take good care of dad, he's all we have. Seeing him on a ventilator is terrifying, they said, but we believe in miracles. While loving, such a mindset could become problematic since their father's situation had the makings of a fatal illness despite our best technology. With antibiotics and fluids, Benny improved dramatically and was taken off the ventilator several days later. That same night, though, a massive stroke paralyzed his entire left side and he went back on life support. We quickly administered clot-busting medicine and he rallied remarkably regaining movement of his left arm and leg. The following day, the intern reported, his delirium is clear and he's mouthing words around the endotracheal tube despite this wicked aspiration pneumonia. I sensed an unexpected window of opportunity. We revisited Benny's life goals in light of what had happened and spoke directly about the big picture. With his children looking on, I held Benny's hand and looked him in the eyes. Choosing my words based on what I knew about his background and the family's expectation of miracles, I said, Benny, just like tobacco plants eventually wither and wilt, so do we. You have improved in some ways, but overall, you're very weak. How can we serve you best? The next morning, Laura and Lynn were upbeat, which confused me, since Benny looked weaker than ever. They pointed to words on a whiteboard in the room, explaining they were Benny's goals. 
Stable vital signs? Baptism. I spotted Kelly, our charge nurse, smiling like a cat who'd swallowed a canary. In her arms, she clutched a box containing a large vinyl swimming pool. First, I made sure this was actually Benny's request and not the family's. My next thought was that we'd have a chaplain anoint him with holy water in his bed. But Laura disagreed. Jesus wasn't sprinkled, Doc. He was dumped. A senior physician protested that the patient was on a ventilator and said he'd never seen a bedside baptism like this in 50 years of practice. There was no shortage of opinions about whether this was appropriate, safe, or even possible. A large area next to Benny's bed was cleared and an electric pump inflated the pool. When a large multi-person bucket brigade proved too difficult, an engineer rigged dialysis tubing to circulate the pool with a stream of warm water. Benny was then hoisted high into the air via a patient transfer lift and the ventilator was unplugged before he was lowered into the pool. Lynn gently took his father, the man who'd showed him how to farm, into his arms. Following the cherished Christian tradition, he slowly submerged Benny's head, completely under the water, saying, Dad, I baptize you in the name of the God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that On cue, the palliative care social worker began belting out Amazing Grace. The rest of us stood frozen in time. First out of the water was blue corrugated ventilator tubing. Then his face appeared around the breathing tube. Benny's huge smile seemed to say, better late than never. When he died a week later, Laura implored me to tell other people about her dad, hoping his experience would show them that we can all become strong through our weakness. In fact, I've seen scores of patients and families use profound outer wasting as a catalyst for deep inner renewal. The most two important frames of our life are birth and death. We typically associate baptism with the former, yet Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism to indicate the formative next step that dying represents for our journey. The ICU team's bold yet careful response to Benny's unusual request taught me an enduring lesson regarding sympathy versus empathy. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling with someone. In all the surrounding insanity of the hospital that day, diving deeply into Benny's life through his baptism on the breathing machine allowed all of us to be reborn too. Being with him in that pool and rising with him out of it, we walked into others' lives better prepared to serve them. And it doesn't get better than that, folks, and that's why we love running these stories. Uh, you know, you got to hold back a tear listening to that. And I love that definition of empathy and sympathy. You know, Bono said of Johnny Cash when he was buried, Johnny Cash doesn't sing to the damned, he sings with the damned. And I think that's why Cash was so loved. And God bless the folks who did this amazing thing. Uh, and most folks in most hospitals just wouldn't have bothered. 
Too difficult. Splash a little water on his head. That's it. That's all we got. We'll end here as we started. Our final thought segment. Alison Krauss. Studying about that good old way And you shall wear the starry crown Good Lord, show me the way Oh, sinners, let's go down Let's go down, come on down Oh, sinners, let's go down Down in the river to pray As I went down to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown, good Lord, show me the And we continue here with our American stories. And up next, Greg Hengler has an unlikely World War II story about George McGovern, the liberal anti-war Democratic presidential candidate from South Dakota, who was soundly defeated by President Nixon in the 1972 election. Stephen Ambrose is one of America's leading biographers and historians. Ambrose's works have inspired Americans to regard its war veterans with newfound reverence. His bestsellers chronicle our nation's critical battles and achievements, from his seminal war works D-Day and Band of Brothers, to undaunted courage and nothing like it in the world, the men who built the transcontinental railroad. Stephen Ambrose passed in 2002, but his epic storytelling accounts can now be heard here at Our American Stories, thanks to the permission from those who run his estate. Here's Stephen Ambrose to tell us a short story from his book, The Wild Blue, The Men and Boys Who Flew the B-24s Over Germany. My next book is a, a story of the B-24 in the Second World War. And it, it, it's not exclusively about, it's about a squadron and, and then about the bomb group. But one of the members of the squadron was George McGovern, who was a pilot of a B-24, 35 missions, got the Distinguished Flying Cross. Which most people, they, what? Excuse me. He's the most famous anti-bombing, anti-war advocate in the whole world. He flew bombers in the Second World War, and he did. And how do you open a story? I open with George. He had come back from a raid over Vienna. He was all shot up with shrapnel and everything, and the plane just barely limping along, and it's a good story in itself. And the crew called up to him, Lieutenant, we got a bomb stuck in the bomb bay, half in and half out. Whoa. Well, you can't land a B-24 with a bomb. <laughs> and so they're either going to have to bail out or they're going to have to get rid of that bomb. And George told them, go to work on that bomb so you can get it loose. And they finally called up and they were now over a, a, a part of Western Austria, rural. And they called up, Lieutenant, we got it. We're ready. Drop it, says George. And they were by this time, because they were so badly shot up, down to about 10,000 feet, and it was a clear day, and he could see that bomb going down. He watched and watched and watched. Boom, it hit a farmhouse. 
And George looked at his watch and he said, oh, I'm a farmer. I come from South Dakota. I know what time farmers eat. After the bomb fell, McGovern closed the bomb bay doors and headed home. On the intercom, he and Cooper, the navigator, talked. McGovern asked, what's the highest elevation we're going to go past? Cooper looked at his map, did his calculations, and replied, 8,000 feet, George, 8,000 feet. In an interview, Cooper told me, actually, it was only 7,000 feet, but I added another 1,000 feet because I was engaged to get married. <laughs> Cooper grinned and then added, as George was expecting his first child, he added another 1,000 feet on top of that. Back at Sherignola, was an easy landing. No one had been hurt. McGovern jumped into a truck and rode over to the debriefing area where the Red Cross woman gave him coffee and a donut. An intelligence officer came running up to him, the same officer who had handed him a cable back in December that told him his father had had a heart attack and died. And the bomb group commander told George, you can take tomorrow off. And George said, no, I'm not going to take that excuse. I'm here for a job. This time, however, the officer was grinning from ear to ear. As he handed a cable to McGovern, he said, Congratulations, Daddy, you now have a daughter. The cable was from Eleanor. Their first baby, whom she named Anne, had been born on March 10 in the Mitchell Methodist Hospital. Eleanor concluded the cable, Child doing well, love, Eleanor. I was just ecstatic, McGovern said, jubilant. But then he thought, Eleanor and I have brought a new child into the world today, and I probably killed somebody else's kids right at lunchtime. Hell, why did that bomb have to hit there? He went over to the officer's club and had a drink, cheap red wine. He was toasted and cheered. But he later said, it really did make me feel different for the rest of the war. Now I was a father. I had not only a wife back home, but a little girl. All the more reason why I wanted to get home and see that child. He returned to his tent and wrote Eleanor a long letter. He did not mention the farmhouse, but he couldn't get it out of his mind. In an interview last year, he said to me, that thing stayed with me for years and years, decades. If I thought about the war, almost invariably, I would think about that farm. There's been much criticism of the American air effort in the Second World War. People have said, geez, all that production that went into making those bombers, all of the expense of training those pilots and the crews, that would have been better spent on the Army or on the Navy instead of on those big bombers, plus which what they did was just awful. They killed women and children. And they never hit any of their targets, according to the critics. We shouldn't have done it. Well, we don't know. What we do know is the Allies won the war. What McGovern did, what the 741st Squadron did, along with the rest of the 455th Bomb Group and all of the 15th Air Force and the 8th Air Force, most especially in their attacks against oil refineries and marshalling yards, was critical to the victory. They paralyzed the German army. In April 1944, the Germans were producing oil at a rate of 100%. They had plenty of it. This was down a year later to 1%. Hitler could not get gasoline for his Mercedes. German tanks couldn't move. They became fixed fortifications. 
the Germans, this is the country of Mercedes, the Germans had no trucks. They had become a horse-drawn army fighting a 20th century war. McGovern, his crew, and all the airmen had spent the war years not in vain, but in doing good work. Along with all the peoples of the Allied nations, they saved Western civilization. George Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister of the First World War, was living in London in the Second World War, and he watched these air crews in action, and he had this to say. They were kittens in play, but tigers in battle. In 1985, McGovern was lecturing at the University of Innsbruck. A director of Austria's television, the state-owned station, contacted him to ask him to do a documentary, uh, to do an interview for a documentary he was producing on Austrian World War II. McGovern reluctantly agreed. It was a woman reporter doing the interview. She said, Senator McGovern, you're known around the world for your opposition to war, but you were a bomber pilot in the Second World War. You hit our beautiful cities, Innsbruck, Vienna. You killed women and children. Don't you regret that? McGovern's answer, well, nobody thinks that war is a lovely affair. It's humanity at its worst. It's a breakdown of normal communication, and it's a very savage enterprise. But on the other hand, there are issues that sometimes must be decided by warfare after all else fails. I thought Adolf Hitler was a madman who had to be stopped. So my answer to your question is no. I don't regret bombing strategic targets in Austria. And her face just dropped. She was terribly disappointed. And George, being George, saw that. And he said, well, there was one bomb that I do regret. <laughs> what was that? McGovern told her about the bomb that had stuck in the Bombay door and had to be jettisoned on March 14, 1945. And what happened? Cut. End of interview. And the documentary was shown a couple of months later on Austrian TV. And there's a call at the station. It's an old man. He said, I'm a farmer. And that was my farm that he had. <laughs> it was exactly the way he described it. And I want you to tell Senator McGovern that I saw that bomb come out. And I got my wife and our two little girls and we went into the ditch. And nobody got hurt. And I further want to tell you to tell Senator McGovern I don't care what other Austrians say, I hated Hitler. I hated him so much that the instant I saw my little farmhouse and my barn go up, I thought to myself, if this shortens the war by one second, it was worth it. The television station called McGovern and told him what the farmer had said. For McGovern, it was, quote, an enormous release and gratification. It seemed to just wipe clean a slate. Thanks very much. And what great storytelling by one of the great storytellers of all time, particularly all things surrounding World War II. And thanks to the Stephen Ambrose estate for allowing us to use that story, and we'll be using more. And my goodness, the B-24 Liberator, you could just tell a story about that. And, of course, the Higgins boat. 
Because my goodness, the people here in this country making these these planes and these boats and these tanks, so many of them women, by the way, doing that work. It's a story all by itself. And by the way, the fact that we reduced the amount of oil Germany was able to manufacture from 100% to 1% and to cripple the German army. Hitler didn't have gas for his own Mercedes. And you could hear Ambrose say that with pride. The story of George McGovern and, of course, the story of the conscience of a soldier here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our next story is brought to you by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Costs. And we're focusing here on healthy aging and something called Blue Zones which we'll get into a bit later. But let's get into the story first. Dean and Aisha Sherzai were both children of diplomats, and their careers in medicine landed them in Afghanistan, where they met. But what brought them together was their shared experience of having grandparents succumb to dementia. Here are Dean and Aisha to introduce themselves. I'm Dean Sherzai. I'm a neurologist, neuroscientist. My father was an ambassador. We moved around and ended up in Pittsburgh, not a place that people usually think of going, but it was a wonderful place for us. And then for schooling, for college, I went to um, uh, Virginia, uh, specifically George Mason and then Georgetown. And then I did my fellowship at the National Institutes of Health. And then around 2002, I was asked by the, uh, Tommy Thompson and, uh, and the uh, World Bank to go to Afghanistan because my background, my grandparents were from Afghanistan and I uh, helped create the healthcare system there. And that's where I met this amazing, amazing human being. And that's the person next to me. My name is Aisha Sherzai. I'm a neurologist. I am the co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program here at Loma Linda University Health, along with my husband, Dean, my childhood. So my parents and my grandparents are from Afghanistan, and they, you know, they lived here in the United States. My grandfather was actually the prime minister of Afghanistan, and he was one of the people who rewrote the constitution of the country. He was a surgeon trained at Columbia University and got his master's in public health from Johns Hopkins. So after the Civil War, everybody immigrated to the United States and we traveled quite a bit because like Dean's parents, my father was also a diplomat and he was with Food and Agricultural Organization. So I lived in about nine countries before I was 18 years old. It was hard as a child, but I think it taught us a lot to adapt ourselves to any environment that we were thrown at. And uh, now I consider it a blessing because I met wonderful people and uh, we were exposed to all these cultures. And um, when you live outside of the United States, you truly appreciate all of the wonderful things that you have here in the United States. So 
As far as my education is concerned, you know, we went to different schools. Um, I'm a polyglot. I know, you know, multiple languages because of my exposure. Um, I always wanted to go into a field to be of service to people because that's what was, you know, put in our minds by my grandfather and my father and my mother. And so I chose medicine because of my grandfather and um, I got trained at UCSD, UC San Diego and most of my training, my neurology and preventive medicine training. I did a dual residency here at Loma Linda, so I'm a proud graduate. And then I went to Columbia University for two years to specialize in vascular neurology and epidemiology. And, um, you know, throughout my education, along with Dean, um, our focus was to understand brain health better because my grandfather, as an amazing of a man, as an intelligent as he was, he suffered from dementia. And over, over my teenage years and over my childhood, I saw this amazing man who was a role model for all of us. He was um, basically our hero. We saw how he slowly and gradually lost his memory to the point where he wasn't able to recognize his children and his grandchildren. And we saw him slowly and gradually become like a child. And we had to take care of him. My mom and dad had to take care of him. So that left a tremendous um, impact um, on me. And then we ha I had another grandparent who went through the same thing. So we went into this field, both of us, um, wanting to make a difference and understanding um, the diseases of the brain better, and um, here I am. Uh, we had the first conversation in Afghanistan in a party. It was about our grandparents, because my grandfather was an incredible human being, a secretary of education, brilliant man, who again, same thing, suffered from Alzheimer's. and. Uh, I remember that we were in Virginia, uh, we had land for, uh, for hunting um, back then and we gathered around him, all his children and grandchildren, this powerful of a man. And one day while playing chess with him, he forgot how to move the knight. It's an unusual move, it's like an L move. He forgot how to move a knight, are you, are you kidding, this, this super genius? And uh, that just put everybody into a shock. And, from then on, we saw that this, this horrible decline, the loss of, of, in many ways, dignity. This person that, that was proud of nothing more than his cognition, his thinking, his brains, losing parts of that, not knowing how to you know, wear a shirt, not knowing how to, uh, you know, recognizing people and, and simple things. There's nothing more painful than that. So we were sitting in the middle of a cold room with everybody else talking about politics and the two of us are talking about our grandparents and how they suffered. And that conversation was much more than that conversation. That actually formed our direction. We decided we're going to come back and restart the whole you know, process with a focus towards prevention. Not the typical one, not the same pharmaceutical one. I, I was at the experimental therapeutics branch at NIH, incredibly esoteric and you know, molecular, and Aisha had done this uh, fMRI work at uh, UCSD, an incredible machine that can actually look at the function of the brain, but we were getting sick of this, you know, uh, weird science that wasn't getting anything. 100% failure, zero drugs to slow down or stop the disease. So we took a risk. In fact, in our first conversation, with the director of our program, Leon Thal, which is the number one dementia person in the country. We said we wanted to go to Loma Linda to study prevention, and he said, that's career suicide. And you've been listening to Dean and Aisha Shurzai, their love story, 
And then, well, as he just said, committing career suicide by wanting to work on prevention. And prevention of what? Well, dementia, Alzheimer's, that debilitating name that stripped so much dignity from their own brilliant grandfathers. When we come back, more of Dean and Aisha's story here on Our American Stories, brought to you by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Cost. back with the story of Dean and Aisha Shirzai, brought to you by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Costs. The Shirzais were interested in studying Alzheimer's prevention at Loma Linda University. Everyone thought it would be career suicide. This was their response. And uh, we decided that uh, that's a good way to die career-wise and we came here and uh, started the clinic and studied prevention and studied the disease and and 10 years ago before the concept was ever popular we said that Alzheimer's is preventable it was as if you spit in the face of scientists and everybody was uh, up in arms saying what are you saying this is crazy well this year at the Alzheimer's International Conference the plenary talk the big sign was prevention is the new cure that was amazing this amazing organ has the capacity to cure itself. This, this three pound organ, three pounds, you hold it in your hand, it doesn't even weigh anything. And it's gelatinous, it's like a little jello, a little hard jello. But this three pound organ, 2% of your body's weight, consumes 25% of body's energy. Up to 40% of its oxygen at any one time. It's a hungry organ. It is the center, it wants to be the center. It wants you to know it's the center. And it's overwhelmed. You know, it was supposed to live to 40, at the most 50. You know, you're supposed to run away from a tiger, find a mate, produce a child and die. Nope, we don't want that, we want more. We want more travel, we want to do all kinds of things, uh, well into our 80s and 90s and beyond. But, but that is, is a great thing, but, but it puts a lot of strain on this amazing organ. So this brain gets overwhelmed and we have to address how to give it a chance. But there is, the answer is in the organ itself. It has 87 billion neurons. Each of those neurons can make as, you know, as many as 30,000 connections each. As much as one quadrillion connections altogether. It's a powerful organ that can protect itself if we give it a chance. You know, you know, don't go to the next pill, the blue jellyfish thing, or some vitamin, this or that. It's more complex than that, but if we approach it more complexly, we can give this organ the capacity to continue to grow, not just diminish after the age of 20, 30, but continue to grow well into our 80s and 90s. So that's our passion. That's our goal. Everything we do, every breath we take, sounds like that song by, uh, you know, everything we do, is about getting the message that the answer 
to the health of the most important organ in your body is in your hands. Not only protect your brain, brain against Alzheimer's, it can allow you to grow your brain capacity um, well into your later life. That's the beautiful message. I think we should start by saying, you know, a lot of people think of brain as, as an organ. But when you look at the function of the brain, it's us. It's our stories, it's our personality, it's the way we feel, it's the decisions we make, it's how we perceive the world, it's how, it's how we hope others perceive us. It's the kind of security that we want to bring in ourselves, in our minds, to connect with other individuals, to understand people better. All of that originates in the brain. So it really is the most important organ. How do you promote it, its health and protect it um, all depends on how we treat ourselves on a daily basis. Um, there was a time when the notion of disease was always separate from health, but we now know that it's a spectrum. The day we are born, the health of our brain is determined with what we're exposed to, whether it's food, whether it's you know stimulation with cognitive activity, things like sleep, a movement. As we grow older and older, it's more and more important to give our brain the chance to allow it to grow and thrive. Unfortunately, in the typical medical system, I'm saying typical because being a part of Loma Linda University Health, I'm proud to say that we look at the entire spectrum of health, a whole person care. You realize that the factors that result um, in brain disease later on in life um, can be modified, that it can be addressed during childhood, during adolescence, during midlife. And when you address those things, you tend to have a great brain. You live long and healthy and a cognitively vibrant life. So the kind of factors that we uh, focus on, obviously based on data, we take pride in being evidence-based and we are researchers, so we look into these factors, are things like, you know, we actually have created a, an acronym about it, NEURO, N-E-U-R-O. N is nutrition, E is exercise, U is unwind or stress management, R is restorative sleep, not just regular sleep, but deep sleep. And O is optimizing cognitive and social activities. And so each one of them have their nuances and you know, a special place in, in people's lives. If we can flip this, the, the script that all of us are used to, which is the one vitamin, the one pill, or take away one thing, you know, take away fats, or take away carbs, or take away, it doesn't work like that. It's a more comprehensive approach. So when we talk about neuro, the end part, there is no question. I know that there's a lot of controversy that's paleo, keto, this, that, that. No. We know that the profound data, the, 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 the bulk of data, thousands of you know, research articles, years and decades of work at population level shows that a plant predominant diet is by far the most effective diet for the brain. What does that mean? That means less meat, especially processed meats, less cheeses and, and less sugar. I mean, we're talking processed sugar. So if we can reduce those things, we, we really significantly protect our brain. Um, and it's not all or none. Reducing a little bit protects you a little bit, but reducing it a lot protects a lot. And then on the other side, increasing this beautiful cornucopia of vegetables of all colors and fruits and legumes, you know, um, nuts, all these things, especially in the whole form, that's it. That, that's not that complex. People always say nutrition is very complex. 
that it's, you know, it's very complicated and that, you know, different types of nutrition pattern work for different people and that not a lot of people know about the idea of what a healthy nutrition entails. And that's not true. Um, and, you know, it's quite sad to hear things like the ketogenic diet or, you know, the diet that is restricted in an entire, you know, food group come up and, you know, take, take space and confuse people and just create a lot of noise. It's sad because you see the repercussions, you know, when people actually go on an extreme diet, like, or, or they completely cut out a food product, they actually suffer from it. They see, they see the negative impacts of it uh, as far as health is concerned. So uh, yeah, we've, we've known for a long time what a healthy diet is. And by making that switch slowly, if it, that, that needs to be done slowly, that's fine. You'll see that you won't be feeling deprived. For example, one of the fears I had was salt. You know, if I give up salt, my gosh, my whole childhood was salt. You know, everything you ate had salt. I mean, the marketing, you know, gurus are brilliant. The, the, you know, the sugar, the salt, and the fat. There's a reason why we are addicted to those, because those are survival foods, meaning that they're not thriving foods, those are survival foods. So just because you're surviving doesn't mean you're thriving. Those are two different concepts, two different mechanisms. So it's a matter of taste, right? So I get introduced to all these herbs and spices, a world of herbs and spices. It's, it's, and you have incredible taste, but more importantly, Pound for pound, herbs and spices have more anti-inflammatory, antioxidant characteristic than any other food. So here you take a food that's probably the most damaging food out there, salt, blood pressure, everything you can think of, and you switch it with herbs and spices and you make it into medicine. Initially you're gonna feel, uh, we forget this, I feel weak, I feel weird, something is wrong, I'm, I'm, I, this is not working. Well. Why is that the case at the beginning? Because it's an addictive drug. So when you come off a drug, what happens? Withdrawal. But invariably, after a couple of months, every patient comes and says, oh my gosh, initially I had a hard time, but I am feeling so bright that I've never felt before like this. I feel like a fog has lifted. And it's simple, and it takes a little learning, so that's the food part. You've been listening to Dean and Aisha Shurzai, and my goodness, the experience of watching both of their grandfathers suffer at the hands of Alzheimer's, well, it changed their life. And they went to this place called Loma Linda, California. By the way, at the time, the only certified blue zone in America. And blue zones, well, there are only a few of them around the world. Five there were. There's been some additional additions since the blue zone book came out, the best-selling book by Dan Butner. And we're going to get more into what Blue Zones are and how they work. But this couple, Dean and Aisha Shurzai, they had all the very best credentials. And they could have gone out into the world as specialists in health, hospitals, private clinics. And instead, they went up to Loma Linda and committed career suicide, you would think, because they were working in the area of prevention rather than cures. And it ends up, as they said, well, the prevention is the cure. When we come back, more of this remarkable couple and these real innovators, Dean and Aisha Shurzai, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with the story of Dean and Aisha Shurzai, brought to us by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Cost. And that, of course, is brought to us, as always, all things health, by the Stetson Family Office. The Shurzais told us about their acronym for better brain health, NEURO. We just heard about the N for nutrition, and here they are to explain the rest. The next part is exercise. I mean, have you noticed that there's no controversy about exercise? Yeah. Yeah, why is that the case? Well, we'll leave that. That's okay. (laughs) Because there's no money to be made on the other side. But nonetheless, exercise is critical for the brain, for for the entire body, but especially brain. We now know that there are three factors that are important. One is at least 150 minutes of strenuous exercise. Now, every time we, we talk to our patients, they say, oh, I'm fine, Dean, I'm fine. I don't need exercise. I walk the neighborhood, I do gardening. I said, that's fantastic, but that's meditation. That's not exercise. You gotta get tired. You have to get short of breath. Of course, with your doctor overseeing things, making sure you don't have a heart problem. But the second thing is, even if you work out half an hour a day, but then you sit eight hours in a row, it negates the benefit. So walk throughout the day. Create an environment in your house where you have to walk, you have to move, you have to stand, you have to stretch, you have to you know, do squats. Move throughout the day. Or get a little foot pedal exercise. And, and the way we do it is that you can't watch TV unless you're moving that thing. And you know, that's, that's beautiful. That, that's that's uh, better than exercise. So move throughout the day. The third element is leg strength. This is a surprising one. You did the research on this. Uh, the research shows that people who have strong leg muscles actually have bigger brains. Um, the area of the brain hippocampus that is responsible for encoding memory actually grows when the muscles in the, in the body, especially in the legs, actually grow. And it makes sense because our legs have the largest muscles. So when we work them out, they actually create a whole lot of growth hormones for the brain called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So if you have a lot of that you know, circulating in your body, it actually helps the brain much better. So bigger legs equals to bigger brains. I mean, it makes sense. The biggest pump in your body is not your heart. It's your legs. The way the blood gets back to the body is with the legs pumping, so stronger legs there. The second thing is the biggest metabolic surface in the body is the legs. So meaning that how it processes glucose and energy, the legs. So if you have bigger legs, stronger legs, the The number one factor that gets elderly into the emergency room is falls. Guess what's the best thing for avoiding falls? Stronger legs. I mean, the list goes on and on. So start doing your little lunges, your little mini squats, start getting those legs strong. Um, We're expecting massive legs for America. Yeah, so that's the leg thing. We usually say that nutrition, stress management, and sleep create the environment for brain to thrive, but exercise and mental activity actually grow the brain. Study after study after study shows that people who exercise have a bigger brain, the Harvard study. They they looked at neuroimaging or MRIs of people who um, exercise and they found out that people who exercise on a regular basis or are active actually have better looking brains. And when you look around the world where people live the longest and they have the highest number of centenarians, um, they actually live in areas where there are less roads and they have less cars and it's a hilly area and they walk a lot. So you take places like Ikaria in Greece and... Unless they roll down the hill. I'm sorry? Go ahead. Unless they roll down the hill. (laughs) Um, But it's walking. It's just, you know, being physically active. So the third thing is stress management. We, we say unwind, 
the, the you and uh, neuro. Uh, but the reason we say that is because it's about managing stress, unwinding stress, because it's not just about bad stress. We actually talk about good stress. Bad stress is the kind of stress that's not driven by your purpose, doesn't have a clear direction, doesn't have clear timelines. It just starts gnawing at you because you don't know where it's going, what it's doing, and after a while, it actually starts eating at your brain. In fact, we know that people with chronic stress have smaller brains. And sometimes people just, you know, they, they can't really differentiate between stress and what happens in their day-to-day -day life. So people who are chronic worriers, when they worry about everything or every small little thing affects them negatively, that's actually stress. Mm -hmm. And if that continues day after day after day, that exactly is the thing that destroys the brain. It eats away at our brains. Now, good stress, let's focus on that. That's critical. Good stress is actually stress. In fact, the people that had the most protection with their brain, and the greatest protection conferred to their brain, were the people that were challenged throughout life. That challenge is, is stress. I mean, when somebody gets a higher degree, when somebody's running a company, when somebody's organizing something, when somebody's leading a project, when somebody's volunteering, these are not stress-free things. These are not tension-free things. But what's the difference? Those activities are driven by your purpose. They have a clear direction. They have clear timelines of success. That actually builds your brain. How could that be? Well, it's the interpretation in your brain. Your brain says, this is a good stress because I, it's mine, it has direction. That sends a different message to your pituitary, which is your master gland, which controls your thyroid, controls your growth hormone, control, controls your insulin, controls your immune system. So bad stress creates chaos. Your cortisol levels go up, your adrenaline levels go up. All these things are thrown off. And over time, actually not that much time, even shortly, it damages the body significantly. Now, good stress is different. It sends a different message. I like it, it's positive, it's one of stabilization. Cortisol level goes down, adrenaline goes down, and your body is actually allowed to heal. This is moment to moment. Now, look at that. I'm telling you that by addressing your stress, how do you address your stress? Most of us don't even identify our stress. In our house, if there's anything that we'll be sponsored by is a whiteboard company because we have a whiteboard in every room. Our kids get up and they have to write clearly, specifically, clearly means specifically, what is the bad stress? Oh, I don't feel good. That's not specific. Uh, you know, in my classes, this part of the class is giving me trouble. That's specific. Good stress. When I'm doing, you know, when I'm reading, I like passages that are like such and such, and that's good stress. You identify those. What you do is you build around good stresses and you reduce the bad stresses. This is management. This is like business management, but it's management of the most important thing you have, your moods, your stresses. Because if you don't do that, forget about nutrition, that will never happen. You don't do that, you'll never find time for exercise. You don't do that, forget about sleep. What's the number one thing that affects sleep? Stress. If you don't do that, you will never optimize the brain. So manage stress by specifically identifying good and bad. That actually determines if your brain grows or shrinks. And you're listening to Dean and Aisha Shurzai, and they're talking about, well, the things that we can do to live better, to live healthier, to live longer. 
their discussion of the brain, their discussion of stress, good stress and bad stress. Well, it doesn't get much better than this. They're in a place called Loma Linda, California, which happens to be a blue zone. Pick up the book Blue Zones by Dan Butner and read all about these parts of the world where people live to be 100. And well, they live well and they live to be 100. And by the way, what are some of the covering the lifestyles of these blue zones? And by the way, these are zones where lots of people engage in these activities. Moderate regular physical activity is number one. Life purpose is listed as two. Stress reduction, which we just heard about. Moderate caloric intake, plant-based diet, moderate alcohol intake, engagement in spiritual or religious exercise. It's not just your body you have to exercise, but your soul. Engagement in family life and engagement in social and civic life. And all of these things together create this ecosystem that allows for just a richer, better, and, well, longer and healthier life. When we come back, more of Dean and Aisha Sherzai's story, the husband and wife doctors who risked their careers to prevent Alzheimer's. Their story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories in the conclusion of Dean and Aisha Sherzai's story on better brain health. They've spent years researching how to combat Alzheimer's, going as far as saying it could be prevented even before the rest of the medical community thought so. They created their acronym NEURO, Nutrition, Exercise, Unwind, Rest, and Optimization. Here they are talking about the story behind the power of sleep. The next thing is sleep. Sleep is obvious, it's important. Eight hours of the night you're paralyzed. Why would you be paralyzed? That puts your body in significant compromise. Why would it be created that way? Well, it's because it's that important. Eight hours of sleep, sleep does two things. When we sleep, I think it's probably the most important time of the day for us. I feel like a hypocrite right now because we, we just traveled and I'm so jet lagged, but please forgive me, but <laughs> it's during sleep where our memories are created. All of the information that we get from our conversations and interactions, they land in our brain like as if you're scribbling on a sticky note. But when we sleep, that small you know, sticky note gets converted into a beautifully typed Word document that gets placed in a file and a folder in a cabinet so that when you need it the next day or the next month or the next year, you actually know the location and your brain has an easier time retrieving that. That's basically what happens when we're talking about encoding of memory. And when we go 
to the deepest stages of our sleep, that's exactly what happens. When people don't get good sleep, when they have interrupted sleep, or when they have shorter amount of sleep, that process gets interrupted. And they've done studies where when people um, you know, have, for example, when students had an exam the next day and they were sleep deprived, their scores were lower. They actually had a difficult time organizing their thoughts. And on the contrary, when they got a good seven to eight hours of sleep where their sleep pattern or the architecture was such where they reached those deep stages, they did phenomenally. The second thing that happens when we sleep is the brain cleanses itself. Because the brain is such an amazingly active organ, imagine the amount of byproducts that are created. Like a building, you know, when it's, when it's active and people come and go, there's a lot of garbage produced. And so the same analogy of a building can be applied to what the brain goes through at night. You know, at night the building shuts off, uh, but there are janitors that come in and clean up the building for the next day. So we have these cells called microglia, and these are the janitor cells of our brain. So what they do is they get activated when we sleep, and they go around and they gather all of these waste products and the byproducts and the toxins, and it gets rid of them from the brain to the body. When we don't sleep, these janitor cells go nuts. They start not only getting rid of the toxins, but they actually eat away at the brain. So people who are sleep deprived or they're, you know, they, they have night shift works and their sleep architecture is completely damaged, they actually have smaller brains on scans. And bad sleep or sleep disorders is very prevalent in the community. A lot of us have sleep apnea, but we never find out about it because it's something that's not usually asked in the clinic. So when people have you know, sleep disorders like sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome, or they work long hours where they stay up all night and don't, they don't get enough sleep, they actually tend to have higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. There was a study that came out from University of Florida a couple of years ago, and they found that people who had sleep apnea, which is a condition where you stop breathing and your brain doesn't get enough oxygen and you keep on waking over and over again, sometimes more than 50, 60 times, they actually had a 70% higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to those who didn't have it. Um, it's all about finding out what the disorder is and using slow cognitive behavioral therapy and sleep hygiene to help improve sleep patterns. We don't mean that you should stop your sleep medication. We're not against medicine. We just are against medicine being used forever. I mean, there's a whole mentality in medicine now that once you put somebody on medicine, you, they're supposed to go on forever. That, that damages the brain long-term sleep medication has never been shown to be beneficial, in fact the opposite. Because data shows that even a lot of the medicines, even though you're knocked out, but you're not getting the deep level sleep. So you think you've slept, but it, it, it actually has caused damage over time. So start working on sleep. The next thing is the optimizing. And, and optimizing means that good stress. For us, optimizing is not playing Sudoku. I, I'm, I'm a, on a personal crusade against Sudoku. You're appears. gonna make a lot of people upset. I know, I know. Sudoku is fine, I just hate it. <laughs> but it's, it's about, we did the largest study, uh, the meta-analysis that looked at what kind of behavior, what kind of games actually affect the brain the best. It's not a particular game, it's complexity, meaning activities that involves all of the brain. What, let's see, what is that? Is it a game on the computer where you follow a little dot? No, 
It's real life activities like learning a new musical instrument, learning a new language, learning a new dance, learning um, uh, you know, how to manage uh, something, learning a new, taking a new class. These are complex. They involve all parts of the brain, not one part. They're also usually driven by your purpose. You like it. So it's a different kind of interaction with your brain. So let's talk about music. Aisha is a phenomenal singer. If she knew how bad I was at music, I think this relationship would never have started. But I've played guitar for 30 years and I'm terrible. Uh, I mean, that's not even a joke. It's a terrible guitar player, but I like it. But look at guitar. So you're playing a guitar, you're reading the notes. That's the left side of the brain that's being activated. And you're thinking about it and processing it, and that's your frontal lobe. You're visually processing it. It's your back of the brain, it's your occipital lobe. You're being creative, it's your right parietal lobe. You're emotionally involved, that's your limbic system. That's not Sudoku. That's your brain on fire. And that's the case in all these complex activities. If you're building something, if you're working on your car and you love it and you're involving multiple elements, if you're learning a new language, especially if you go to the country of that language and involve, you know, get, get involved, that's all of your brain. That's each of those neurons, of the 87 billion neurons, making 30,000 connections each. That's the level of protection that cannot be even be overcome by, by pathology, like Alzheimer's. That's the, the kind of activities I want people to get involved, especially around the age of retirement. We say, don't retire. A friend of ours, Howard Rankin says, don't retire, rewire. Means if you're going to retire, get something else, get involved in something else that you love and work as hard, challenge yourself, because that actually keeps your brain connected. That's the beauty of, of, of getting your brain involved throughout life, because those millions of connections. It's incredibly important for people to hear this because we are being hit with the tsunami real fast. We're actually in the tsunami. Right now in the United States, there are 5.8 million people living with Alzheimer's disease, and every 64 seconds, one person is diagnosed. Two-thirds of them are women, and two-thirds of caregivers are women. So the incredible amount of stress that caregivers go through actually keep, puts them at a higher risk of developing multiple diseases, including Alzheimer's disease. And when you know that there is something that can be done to prevent this horrible disease, and you know our job is and our joy is in the fact that we can disseminate this this message of hope that people should be able to take care of their own health and take control of their brain health. By the way, it's the fastest growing epidemic in the West. It's number three in the United States, number one in Japan, number one in England, and it's going to be number one in the U.S. Every family will experience it. And at this point, we have zero medication. The medications we have are symptomatic. They're not slowing the disease or stopping the disease. But guess what? We're saying that 90% of Alzheimer's can be prevented with a comprehensive approach where you don't have to pay anybody anything. That's, and, and it, it starts at the community level. We, we want the communities to combine, come together and work around creating environments where these things can, can take place. Because guess what? The most expensive disease in America is also Alzheimer's. The second costliest disease is heart disease at 120 billion. The third costliest disease is cancers. All cancers combined at 70 billion. Alzheimer's direct cost alone 290 billion, indirect cost 240 billion. So that's like five times more than the second the, the leading disease. And it's growing to the extent that by in the next 20 years, it will be more than $1.2 trillion. It will destroy our economy by itself. And we're saying we can stop it 
or at least for 90% we can stop. And that starts with these kind of conversations. This starts with the families joining together and changing, making some changes. And then we hope, uh, and, and if, you know, we're here. If people need guidance, if they want to talk to us, uh, Loma Linda is a leader in this. Loma Linda Health is a leader in all of this prevention. In fact, it was the first place that, that invested in prevention and healthcare and, and everything's coming around back to Loma Linda. And on the brain side, the share's eyes here. Uh, we're here to help. And you've been listening to the story of Dean and Aisha Sherzai, and what remarkable, beautiful people. And my goodness, I'm glad we were able to bring just a piece of their wisdom and knowledge and their life stories, because this all started again with grandparents who were ravaged by Alzheimer's. And by the way, you heard the statistics. The fastest-growing epidemic in the West, 90% of it can be prevented. And my goodness... It is with no medication that we can do this. And so many of you listening, you're at that age where you're now starting to think about taking care of your parents. And let's face it, you're taking care of your kids and your parents. And my goodness, it's time to get everybody's house in order and do what we can to stop this scourge. The brain, we learn so much about it. 2% of our body, 3 pounds, 87 billion neurons, 20% of our energy, 40% of our oxygen. And Aisha said, it isn't just an organ, it's us. We can work on it and make it better and stronger, and it'll change our lives. And as always, our health stories are brought to us by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Costs. And thanks to the Stetson Family Office for sponsoring the series. Dean and Aisha Sherzai's story, here on Our American Stories. 